Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to. Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy! Circus time! (laughs) The podcast is a quarter century old! No, it's Circus for the Circus, I was saying. I know. Oh. And also, 25. <laughs> the greatest show on earth. That's what our <laughs> podcast is. But also, this is 25 episodes, the 25th best picture. That is way more exciting than the greatest show on earth. <laughs> Anyways, we are talking about the 25th Academy Awards and the 25th best picture winner, the greatest show on earth. Come one, come all. Yeah. Uh, but first, we wanted to make a special little announcement After this episode, we will be debuting our second sort of bonus show every other week. And this, uh, like each episode that you know and love now, will transition to being every other week. So that means every other week we will be talking about one of the years of the Academy Awards and the opposite every other weeks. We will be doing more film history, delving a little deeper into things that we don't have time to talk about in our regular episodes. Basically, we realized that we wanted to talk about so many things coinciding with each year. And so by doing it bi-weekly, it gives us an opportunity to watch more of the film so we have a better grasp on what we're talking about, but also to be able to provide more in-depth and specified information so that during our episodes about the Academy Awards, we can talk about the Academy Awards. And then we're going to be adding on these little episodes so we can kind of do our side tangents there. Yes, they will be a little bit shorter than these, probably about half of the length of these regular episodes, but that means double the episodes, double the fun. Yeah, so that when Kristen wants to talk for an hour about Betty Davis, she has an opportunity to. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that, folks. I got really into it. (laughs) Stay tuned for next week for our first little extra show yeah and we hope you'll stick with us bi-weekly we think that that will give us a better opportunity to provide more information as these ceremonies get more complex and the politics get more complex and the studios and hollywood as a whole grow the industry is going to continue growing and so we just have so much more to talk about that we want to share we don't want to leave anybody out and the further along we go closer to now of course, there's more recorded history. Right. Mm-hmm. People have realized that Hollywood is an important part of the American culture. So they have uh, started to retain more information about what they've got going on. Yeah. Anyways, that's our announcement. Ta-da! Yay. But uh, for those of you who really know the show, we have to get to the Penny News. Yes. Before we do anything else. Yes. So what has Penny been up to <laughs> recently? So this story comes by request of Laura Trudell, (laughs) our lovely roommate. Uh, I was telling her different things and she was like, that's what you got to talk about on the podcast. (laughs) So just the other day, (laughs) Zach left before me. So I was sleeping a little bit later and Penny was upstairs with me 
kind of just doing her thing. And she, when I sleep later than Zach does, she tends to kind of get up and roam around. She'll get out of bed and go to her little bed or whatever. And so I was sleeping and around like eight, I heard a little like, and I was like, that sounds like Penny. Is she whimpering? I don't know. And so I kind of like slowly woke up and like looked over and Penny was sitting in her bed with her back foot stuck in her ear. Uh. <laughs> She'd gotten her toenails stuck in her ear fur and she was just in that position. <laughs> yeah, she has very fluffy ears. Uh, as if you've been following us on Instagram, you've seen pictures of her and she has the fluffiest ears and she gets to scratching them and <laughs> gets her foot caught all the time. But it was so funny to me because I was like, dog. You would not survive in the wild. You would just be chilling and get your foot stuck in your ear. And then what are you going to do? What are you supposed to do about that? Yeah. She is very needy and dependent on us. Yes. I don't know what she would do without us. No. Anyway, so she woke me up with her little whimpers and I went over and I helped her out. And then she was so relieved and she was like kissing me and like whimpering, oh, finally. leaning into me. I thought me. I would be stuck forever. <laughs> oh, Penny. Good job, Penny. <laughs> So, on to the show. Oh, my gosh. The greatest show on earth. Is it? Ready for a recap? All right. Uh, this is probably the longest recap I've given since, like, the first... Are you serious? Like, five or six. Oh, my it's gosh. It's a complicated plot. No, it's not. It is. Okay. All right. Tell, lead us on. Tell us what's going on. Brad, the general manager of the Ringling <laughs> Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Why is he named Brad? <laughs> I don't know. Convinces the higher-ups to extend the show from 10 weeks to a full season as long as they can keep making a profit. He brings the great Sebastian on board to help achieve this. Brad fights with Holly, his on-again, off-again girlfriend, and Sebastian as they compete for center ring, trying more and more dangerous tricks. He convinces them to use nets, but after some teasing from Holly, Sebastian cuts his net down and attempts a trick he's never done before, falling to the ground and horribly injuring his right arm and hand. Meanwhile, Harry is cheating customers and is fired, and Angel and Klaus have a falling out, so much that he almost crushes her in the middle of the elephant act because of his jealousy, after she shows interest in Brad. Harry and Klaus hatch a plot to stop the equipment and animal train and rob it, but it goes south when the passenger train can't stop in time and crashes into it, killing both Harry and Klaus and others and badly injuring most of the company and destroying much of their equipment. It's revealed that Buttons is the doctor who killed his wife when he has to perform a blood transfusion to save Brad's life after the crash. The company rallies together and sets up what they have left of their show, creating a parade through the nearest town to lead everyone back to their new setup to keep the show alive. Boy, oh boy. I mean, was there anything extraneous in that? No, no, no. That was good. Uh Honestly, it's kind of hard to just understand what the plot is because so much of the plot is mixed up in the circus stuff. Yeah, it's... uh... A very strange movie. Yeah. It's a lot. If you've never seen this movie or if you, I mean, you don't really need to see this movie unless you're into circuses. There is a lot of cool circus stuff in it, but it's a lot of like documentary style footage of a circus Mm -hmm. mixed with sort of a very lame, like the lamest plot, like love triangle ever. Well, and there's a big, there's reasons for all of this. I'll explain them all when uh, we get into my section, but I think this is by far the worst movie I've watched. That was not boring. 
So like this movie to me was not a boring watch. I was very like engaged with it the whole time. Like there wasn't any point in time where I was like, I just want to look at my phone or whatever it is. You know, I wanted to watch it all, but it was just like bad. The scenes between the circus stuff were just so painful to watch. Well, and if I was alive when this came out, like I would have gone to see it and I would have enjoyed it and it would have been fun in the theaters. But like, you know, years later, I would have forgotten that I ever saw it. I wonder if this is like the past version of some of the trashy movies we see now anyways, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. It just happened to be made by like, I I mean, it's like the Transformers movies now. Like Mm. Michael Bay, I feel like (laughs) he's a good director that people like, but he does huge, huge movies and spends a lot of money and makes a lot of money. But like, they're not culturally important. And I feel like that's what this is also. Yeah. I mean, it felt like there was a little bit of like social stuff in the film just about the circus. It obviously was not a film that wanted to comment on the abuse of the circus, though. No. And that was what bothered me so much was like... It was just about the spectacle yeah, of the it's circus. about the joy of the circus and how fun it is and how wild and weird and crazy and sometimes scary it is. And, you know, from a modern con- context, we look back at the circus and we know how insanely abusive and manipulative and how they exploited people with all kinds of disabilities and they like forced people who were in really bad life situations to perform very 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 bad situations for people with the exception of course of the greatest showman which everything is magical in (laughs) Hmm. a double standard is afoot yeah i'm not gonna comment (laughs) hmm Well, on that note, why don't we jump into the ceremony instead? (laughs) Sure, yeah. So today, as we talked about, we're talking about the 25th Academy Awards and Best Picture winner, The Greatest Show on Earth. I literally almost said The Greatest Showman. (laughs) Yes. The Greatest Show on Earth. Um, So this ceremony was held on March 19th, 1953 at the RKO Pantages Theater, hosted by Bob Hope. Uh And simultaneously at the NBC International Theater in New York City, hosted by Conrad Nigel. Yeah, I noticed that this was a thing and it looks like it's going to be a thing for a few years. Yes. So basically, the Academy realized that they wanted to kind of make it a bigger spectacle. And a lot of actors and performers and people involved in the industry were bi-coastal. So a lot of people did film stuff and then went to New York to do Broadway. Right. And so there was a combination of people at both places. They couldn't be bothered to travel cross-country at this time for an awards ceremony. So they were like, well, you know, in order to be equitable, let's have a ceremony at both places. This ceremony was the very first televised ceremony ever. Uh Uh-huh. Hooray. So I talked about a bit ago how there has become video footage, Mm -hmm. um, but we are officially doing live television broadcasts Mm. of the ceremony. You can watch it online now if you want to. There's archival footage of everything. For the first time in television history, there was a television audience estimated at 40 million people watching at one time. This was the single largest audience to watch any one thing on TV at that time. Wow. Nice. Um, The telecast was prompted by the need to finance the bi-coastal ceremony. (laughs) Ah, yes. Um, When three of the film studios refused to provide their customary financial support, um, the RCA Victor Division of the Radio Corporation of America agreed to pay the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences $100,000 as a sponsorship fee. 
They used NBC to telecast the bicoastal ceremony over its 64-station television network and on its 174-station radio system. Additionally, the Armed Forces Radio Service recorded the proceedings for a later broadcast for any armed forces abroad. Um, While in the United States, the show was televised on NBC, in Canada, the live show was broadcast on CCTV, installed at several movie theaters in Montreal and Toronto, replaying the feed that NBC had sent them. Hmm. In Mexico City, XHGC-TV had a broadcast of the ceremony sponsored by Kraft Foods, uh, the following night, because they didn't have a TV network at the time because of issues at the U.S.-Mexico border. So they didn't end up broadcasting live into Mexico until 1955. So they had to show oh. the feed afterwards. Interesting. Kind of a similar thing happened in the U.K. Um, they were trying to broadcast it via the BBC, but they had just had different systems. And so they weren't able to do it live. So they ended up taping it, sending a videotape over to the U.K. for them to to broadcast uh, via the BBC, which was a really innovative technology at the time because videotapes weren't really a thing yet. Yeah. So it was just very interesting. Um, And it required conversations internationally between all of these networks that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and basically all these people coordinating this huge event that happened for the first time ever. Hmm. And it was one of the biggest, I mean, it was the biggest television event in history up to that point. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Another thing that was funny about this broadcast was that it had to be broadcast from 10.30 p.m. to 12.15 a.m., switching back and forth between the West Coast and the East Coast because they started it so late on the East Coast in order to accommodate everyone who was on Broadway at the time so they could finish their shows and then go to the ceremony. Oh, my gosh. I know. What a crazy night. That's horrible. Yeah. I mean... If you're a performer, that is probably the last thing you want to do. Yeah. I mean, if it were me, that's the night that I send my understudy on, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> but they had to accommodate and they wanted, I mean, they had set it up to be bi-coastal. It was going to be so crazy expensive. So they made all these accommodations so that people would actually be there. Yeah. Additionally, the technology that they used for television at the time meant, and this is just like a funny little tidbit that seemed to like stick in people's mind it meant that bob hope had to wear a blue dress shirt with his formal dinner jacket when the traditional shirt for the time would have been white huh. but it was too bright for the cameras to pick up it like oh, set everything my. crazy and so he had to wear a blue shirt and people made fun of him for that oh weird because he was just like out of proper dress <laughs> huh. that's funny just kind of a funny thing An article from the Times that was published on March 30th of 1953, so about a week afterwards, said, quote, In a sort of shotgun wedding, Hollywood and television got together last week for the 25th annual presentation of the Oscars. It was easy to predict who would wear the pants in the family. Master of Ceremonies Bob Hope, bowing to the cathode ray by wearing a blue dress shirt with his dinner jacket, cracked, quote, With Oscar 25 years old, it's high time he got married. While it's true he has a child bride, the kid is loaded. In fact, the bride's father is going to be picking up the tab. Quote. Oh, my. Yeah. So that was kind of the the joke of the evening. Yeah. And I think that there was a little bit of clumsiness to this particular ceremony. Yeah. That makes um, sense. I mean, if you think about They've some never of the, done it before. Yeah. Of the issues that people have had over the last two years trying to broadcast live events from all kinds of different places, including people's own homes. Like it's complicated when you're trying to use new technology. So Mm -hmm. there's a bit of bumbling about, uh, it's not the smoothest of ceremonies, but that's okay. You know, no big deal. One of the most bizarre moments from the ceremony was when Celeste Holm, uh, performed the nominee for best song from Hans Christian Andersen, the song Thumbelina 
to a face painted on her thumb. Uh, whoa. Yeah, oh my gosh. That that's was... not what I was expecting <laughs> you to say. <laughs> she stood on the stage with her little thumb and sang the song. To her thumb. Yes. Wow. <laughs> that is so exciting. I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit of a strange ceremony for everybody involved. Interesting. <laughs> There were some really strange records and statistics that came out of this ceremony that I wanted to share. Okay. I, I, I don't know why. Well, I should say I do kind of know why. This particular ceremony was a little bit off kilter because The Greatest Show on Earth won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. There were other films that were slated to do better. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of skewed a lot of things. So there are some weird records that happened. The film The Bad and the Beautiful ended up winning five awards, which is the most wins ever for a film that was not nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I was very surprised that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. I know. I thought it was. I was shocked when I was reading this because I was like, what? Are you serious? Yeah, no Best Picture nomination, which is wild. Interesting. It's also the second Academy Awards in which a film that was not nominated for Best Picture received the most awards of the evening, excluding a couple years where there were ties, mm -hmm. which is also really wild. I mean, The Greatest Show on Earth didn't win very much. No. The only other film to do this was The Thief of Baghdad at the 13th Academy Awards. And as of now, this has not happened again. Oh, interesting. It was also the second of three years to now in which two films that were not nominated for Best Picture received more nominations than the winner of Best Picture. Oh, Those films yeah. being The Bad and the Beautiful and Hans Christian Andersen, which both had six nominations. Hmm. This did occur again, one other time, at the 79th Academy Awards, <laughs> when the films Pan's Labyrinth and Dreamgirls received more nominations than the Best Picture winner, The Departed, while not receiving a Best Picture nomination themselves. Interesting. Yeah. Also, like, why wasn't, why didn't The Departed receive more nominations? It's one of the more low nominated films in yeah, film history. That's strange. Yeah. And Dreamgirls had the most nominations for that night with nine nominations total, but not Best Picture. Hmm. There's also a lot of politics about that, but we got a lot of years till we get there. Yeah. <laughs> Until the film Spotlight won only the Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay Awards at the 88th Academy Awards, this is the last time that a Best Picture winner only wins two awards total. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like going to be so many years before yeah, that right. happens again. Um, one other fun thing is that the actress Shirley Booth was the last person that was born in the 19th century to win an Oscar in a leading role. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's also the first woman in her 50s to ever win Best Actress. And the second woman to win Best Actress in their 50s doesn't happen until Julianne Moore at the 87th Academy Awards in 2014. Oh, my gosh. For the gosh. film Still Alice. Wow. That is so weird. Yeah. For Best Actress. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Best Supporting Older Women have yeah, won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not counting that. Huh. That is so bizarre. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, John Ford's fourth win for Best Director this year sets mm -hmm. a record for the most wins for Best Director, and that is an unmatched... That is still the record. Yeah, record. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which, good for John Ford. We love a John Ford film. Well, and that is interesting that that has held up so long now. Yeah, I mean, four films doesn't seem like that many to me, considering people who've put out so many films. Well, and lots of directors have been nominated for way more yeah. than that and just yeah. didn't win. Yeah, for sure. But like some of the biggest directors of the last 40 years have had, you know, 10 nominations. Yeah, right. So weird. So this is another kind of strange stat. 
This year is the first time since the introduction of Supporting Actor and Actress Awards, which happened in 1936, Mm -hmm. that Best Picture, Best Director, and all four acting awards went to six different films. Oh my, wow. Yeah, so those six categories, six films. Wow. Um, This has only happened three times since. Okay. So we have it happening again at the 29th Academy Awards in 1956, when Best Picture goes to Around the World in 80 Days, Director goes to Giant, Actor goes to The King and I, Actress goes to Anastasia, Supporting Actor goes to Lust for Life, and Supporting Actress goes to Written on the Wind. You know, we'll get there in a couple years. The next time this happens is in 2005 at the 78th Academy Awards when Best Picture goes to Crash, Best Director goes to Brokeback Mountain, Best Actor goes to Capote, Best Actress goes to Walk the Line, Best Supporting Actor goes to Siriana, and Best Supporting Actress goes to The Constant Gardener. Hmm. Then this happens one more time in 2012 at the 85th Academy Awards when Best Picture goes to Argo, Best Director goes to Life of Pi, Best Actor goes to Lincoln, Best Actress goes to Silver Linings Playbook, Best Supporting Actor goes to Django Unchained, and Best Supporting Actress goes to Les Mis. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting because those last two years are in recent memory for me mm-hmm. and i remember when they happened and i didn't really think anything about it because like you know you're rooting for different things but it's a very rare statistic yeah nobody like made anything of it when it happened in the moment right the stat that i think is more commonly talked about is the separation of best picture and best director because mm-hmm. usually those things tend to coincide that's mm-hmm. pretty common or like best picture and best actor if the actor like really carries the film or something like that. But yeah. to have it so spread out is just really interesting to me and it doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Yeah. Usually the best picture is going to win one of those other five awards. This was kind of a big upset. Uh, the fact that The Greatest Show on Earth won best picture. Um, most people thought that best picture was going to go to High Noon mm-hmm. and The Greatest Show on Earth has just gotten such a bad reputation ever since this. Yeah. And like, I don't know how fair it is. I don't think it's a great film, but like, I didn't have a bad time watching it either. There's like laughable stuff in it. The dialogue is really bad. And like, there's some weird plot points that are unnecessary and stuff like that. But well, and to be honest, it's not worse than Cimarron or Cavalcade. Like, yeah, to me, it's like, oh, if those films could get like a best picture win Mm -hmm. like this can like it's comparable and even like i would prefer to rewatch this film than either cavalcade or cimarron but think about the other films that are nominated this year yeah i would so much rather watch singing in the rain or that's not nominated yeah but it's nominated for other awards that's high noon and singing in the rain are the two films that people in history think should have been the winner for this particular year. Yeah. Even though it only received two nominations, Singing in the Rain has been considered the greatest American musical film of all time by AFI. And in 2007, the American Film Institute, AFI, they updated their list of the greatest films and rated Singing in the Rain as the fifth greatest American film of all time. And the film High Noon was ranked 27th on the same list. Hmm. Which is such a high honor as compared to The Greatest Show on Earth. Well... I mean, part of it is also that they're not going to like, let alone re-nominate, but re-give the best picture to the exact same team that just won best picture the year before. Yeah. Like that is yeah. extremely uncommon. Yeah. Yes. 
True. Very true. Very true. The fact that Gene Kelly was the star of it, he did the choreography, it was a musical by MGM, Arthur Freed was the producer, he wrote all the songs. Like, But Vincent Minnelli's tied to other stuff now, and Gene Kelly wasn't nominated. But I'm saying, they didn't receive any of the nominations because they had just been there the year before. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Spielberg doesn't go back to back with, I mean, never has he done that. Sure, 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 sure. I, I mean, I understand. Tarantino has never done it. I mean, other big people like that. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. There is an ongoing story, too, about High Noon, which is that it should have been more highly considered for best picture but i mean there was a lot of scrutiny on hollywood at the time about um you know communist activities the house un-american activities committee was really pressuring the studios and when awards time came around a lot of people felt pressure to not vote for high noon because the screenwriter carl foreman was tied to communism at the time he had a lot of eyes on him well and the story is very much like mocking Yes. What the HUAC was doing. Yes, exactly. In a like metaphorical way. Yeah. But also just like the fact that there were some tangible people attached to the film that were being investigated made it really highly suspicious. And nobody wants to lose their jobs. Nobody wants the industry to get shut down. So yeah. I think that was definitely a huge reason why that didn't get a lot of the awards that it was probably due. Um, so let's move on here and let's talk about all of our winners for this year. Huzzah. All right, so the winner for Best Picture, of course, goes to The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, Cecil B. DeMille for Paramount Pictures. And as we talked about, the awards are going to the producers now. So he receives the award, which is nice for him. And I just wanted to mention, you may be mentioning this also, but this is the first film to win Best Picture that is not based on previous subject matter since the first and second Academy Awards. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Literally, I, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> literally every other best picture yeah. from the second Academy Awards has been based on a previous work, a yeah. play, uh, some other movie, some other book. Well, and it wins best story, which is the equivalent at the time for best original screenplay. Yeah. I mean, there is a best original screenplay, but it yeah, was but not it's... even nominated for that, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's the best original story. Yeah. Not adapted from a work. Right. Best director goes to John Ford for The Quiet Man which is a great work of his, if you ever feel like watching that. That Mm. one also is very highly revered. Mm -hmm. Best actor goes to Gary Cooper for High Noon. Best actress goes to Shirley Booth for Come Back, Little Sheba. William Inge play. Yeah. Nice play. Uh, Best supporting actor goes to Anthony Quinn for Viva Zapata. Best supporting actress goes to Gloria Graham for The Bad and the Beautiful. Which, a big year for her because she had a great role in The Greatest Show on Earth and a much, much better role in The Bad and the Beautiful (laughs) and highly deserved. No matter what, she deserved to get a win at some point. Right. Best screenplay goes to The Bad and the Beautiful, which, of course, refers to adapted screenplay. Best story in screenplay goes to The Lavender Hill Mob, which is original screenplay. And best story goes to The Greatest Show on Earth. Best Documentary Feature goes to The Sea Around Us. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Neighbors. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel goes to The Light in the Window. Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reel goes to Waterbirds. Best Short Subject Cartoons goes to Johan Maus. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture goes to High Noon. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture goes to With a Song in My Heart. Best Song goes to The Ballad of High Noon from High Noon. Best Sound Recording goes to Breaking the Sound Barrier. Best Art Direction in Black and White goes to The Bad and the Beautiful, Cedric Gibbons. Mm -hmm. Best Art Direction in Color goes to Moulin Rouge. 
Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to The Bad and the Beautiful. Best Cinematography in Color goes to The Quiet Man. Best Costume Design in Black and White goes to The Bad and the Beautiful. And Best Costume Design in Color goes to Moulin Rouge. Best Film Editing goes to High Noon. Um, Best Foreign Language Film goes to Forbidden Games, which is a French film. Uh, The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to Cecil B. DeMille because, Mm -hmm. you know, he's the winner this year. Always the big guy. Big producer wins the producer award. Uh, And there are several Academy Honorary Awards this year. The first goes to George Alfred Mitchell for, quote, the design and development of the camera, which bears his name, and his continued and dominant presence in the field of cinematography. Quote. Hmm. And he and his company were some of the biggest contributors to the Technicolor one reel, two reel, three reel stuff. So Great. they were big innovators in that. Nice. An award goes to Joseph M. Schenk. Uh, and he was uh, Daryl F. Zanuck's partner. Uh, in 1933, they created 20th Century Pictures together, which ended up merging with Fox Film Corporation in 1935. And he was the chairman of 20th Century Fox and was considered one of the most powerful and influential people in film business. Uh, he did have some issues of tax evasion, blah, blah, blah. He went to prison, blah, 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 <laughs> got presidential pardon. <laughs> but when he was released, he returned to 20th Century Fox, where he became infatuated with Marilyn Monroe. And he was one of the big people who launched her career nice (laughs) nice (laughs) prison release marilyn monroe (laughs) way to go marion c cooper also receives one for his quote many innovations and contributions to the art of motion pictures uh and he was a producer he was part of the explorers club uh, which i think we talked about a little bit um we have um but he worked for a bunch of people rko pictures mgm um but he is credited as the co-inventor of the cinerama film projection process uh, and he also is the producer of King Kong and many other things. Additionally, there's an award given to Harold Lloyd for being, quote, master comedian and a good citizen. Hmm. And Harold Lloyd, I didn't know who he was based on the name, but he was a contemporary of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton during the silent era comedies. He mm-hmm. was king of laughs kind of guy. Um, but he is the guy who uh, is in the film Safety Last pictured hanging from the hands of a clock high above the street yes if you've seen that image it's a very famous and enduring image from cinema history Um, so that's him and that was his style and he was all about big tricks Mm. big stunts that Mm -hmm. was his kind of spiel bob hope of course receives an honorary award Uh, why (laughs) once again for quote his contribution to the laughter of the world his service to the motion picture industry and his devotion to the american premise my gosh yeah so he's just racking them up. And then finally, one is given to Plymouth Adventure for Best Special Effects. Oh, okay. Just in their contributions as well. So that's it. That's what I have to share about this particular ceremony. Um, lots of weird things. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> a little strange. Yeah, but, you know, that's okay. It's a, it's a strange year. And, of course, as we've talked about, there is a lot of weird stuff going on in Hollywood because there's so much innovation. There's so many, so many new films about new subject matter in new ways of storytelling there's color there's black and white all these things and at the same time there's all of this outside pressure because of the red scare and because of people prominent people in the industry constantly being searched some people are standing up to it some people are scared of it people don't want to lose their jobs and their income and their ability to create art the way they want to create it so there's just a lot of weird forces at work in the 50s in hollywood and Mm so because this year didn't really have that like super shiny and American in Paris kind of musical, I think that this is the closest it's going to get to a non-political film. Mm-hmm. 
with the exception of staying in the rain, which should have won. But that's okay. That's a whole different discussion. So why don't we take a little break here and then you can share your stuff when we get back. Great. And we're back. All right. Talking about the year in film, 1952. So starting off with some births, uh, we've got a lot of them. We have Lorraine Newman, Harvey Weinstein, Marilou Henner, Steven Seagal, Christine Baranski, Robert Zemeckis, Chaz Palmentieri, Mr. T, Liam Neeson, <laughs> Carol Kane, John Goodman, Dan Aykroyd, Gus Van Sant, Reginald Val Johnson, Patrick Swayze, Michael Jeter, Paul Rubens, Mickey Rourke, Christopher Reeve, Jeff Goldblum, Robert Benini, Roseanne Barr, Jim Cummings, Bill Farmer, and Mandy Patinkin. What on earth? <laughs> A strange group of people. Yeah. Uh, some debuts. We have Anne Bancroft, Bridget Bardot, Geraldine Chaplin, daughter of Charlie Chaplin, uh, George Hamilton, Julie Harris, and Carolyn Jones. Bridget Bardot hasn't done anything yet? She has not. That's weird. And then some deaths, quite a few deaths uh, this year, which is strange. Um, Curly Howard of the Three Stooges, hmm. Curly. Gregory LaCava, uh, he, of course, received Best Director noms for My Man Godfrey and Stage Door, but never won. Hmm. William Fox, um, he was the Hungarian immigrant who started Fox, and they have kept his name ever since, Aww. even though he had little to do with their success, but he started them as a company. Um, Gertrude Lawrence. Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel? Yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Um, Dixie Lee, who was Bing Crosby's first wife, uh, George H. Reed, and John Garfield. Wow. So John Garfield, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, because his death uh, coincides with a lot of what we've been talking about. He, of course, was in Gentleman's Agreement <laughs> as the uh, Jewish best friend of Gregory Peck's character. Oh, right. Yes. Um, so he was caught up in the Red Scare uh, big time and called to testify a few times. And it took a really huge toll on him mentally uh, and physically. Oh, no. Um, he was divorcing his wife in part because she was being labeled and blacklisted also by the committee and just the stress of his own suit. Yeah. Um, and then they also had other personal problems. But this was a big part of it. Three of his best actor friends had recently died young after intense pressure and stress brought on by their own blacklisting. Oh, my God. Um, and against the wishes of his doctor, due to his ailing health, he played several sets of tennis one day, he wasn't supposed to, hmm. and told people there that he hadn't slept at all for the previous two nights leading up <gasps> oh to this. No. Oh no, um, He met actress and friend Iris Whitney for dinner that night, and because he wasn't feeling well, she took him back to her apartment, um, but he wouldn't let her call his doctor. Um, the next morning, she woke to find that he died in his sleep. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I just wanted to read this quote because it was very sad. This was from one of his um, times testifying. He wrote and said, quote, I have nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. My life is an open book. I am no red. I am no pink. I am no fellow traveler. I am a Democrat by politics, a liberal by inclination, and a loyal citizen of this country by every act of my life. Um, it just took such a huge toll on him. And like you were saying, like everyone felt this huge and immense pressure that they didn't want to lose their job, their livelihood, their whole industry, because they were so worried and scared about what was going on. There were so many people whose lives were being just destroyed because mm. they were being considered 
their ideas were being considered illegal, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, so much to the point that many of them died over the stress of it. Wow. Like they just couldn't handle the fact that they were being labeled this way and the stress of what might happen to them or their loved ones or yeah. their careers. It really legitimizes the fear and the reality of what the Red Scare was. At least yeah. like for me, you know, I I just am always in awe when I'm learning about this kind of stuff about it because it's just insane that this happened in America to so many people in the public eye in such an intense and unreal, like horrible, horrible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very sad. Yeah, well, that is really tragic and such a terrible time. Yeah. On the flip side, this is a very interesting thing to happen this same year. So in May of this year, we have Joseph Burstyn, Inc. versus Wilson. So this is a Supreme Court case that is essentially another knock against the code. So it oh, was boy. ruled that censoring a film because it was deemed, quote, sacrilegious is against the First Amendment now. Oh, so censors were starting to say that things were against the code because they were being sacrilegious. Okay. And now this court ruling is saying that that can't be a reason to censor something. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. And so the Supreme Court effectively overrules the decision from Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio, which we talked about before, which was sort of the main reason the code exists in the first place. Um, that had stated that a film was a business effort and shouldn't be protected under the First Amendment to uh, to now deciding that a film is an artistic product, Uh not a business effort, and therefore should be protected as a form or expression of speech. Yeah, absolutely. Which it's very strange that this is happening this same year that the government is trying to censor speech, censor speech and censor, not even speech, just ideas, just people thinking that they have ideas about things you know yeah well and the thing i always found so strange about the code stuff is that it was put in place by religious people Mm -hmm. jesuit priests right yeah yeah so that is one very specific group of people group of people yeah you know uh, that just like is so mind-blowing to me yeah so anyways (laughs) um essentially from this point on to when they make like the rating system the code is is basically dead now Hey, do what you want. Um, It's going to be less than 10 years from now that the code is officially like dismantled mm. and we move on to the rating system that we know now. Yeah, which where, is also like, not super clear. Nothing is censored, <laughs> but you basically are told what's in the film sort of before you go see it. How many F-bombs you're allowed to drop before yeah. you move a rating. But we'll get there. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, the Cinerama is debuted this year. This is basically uh, the first um, sort of version of it is using three large projectors, projecting onto three large screens that are next to each other, allowing for a view of nearly 180 degrees. Uh-hoo. This is used a lot in like Disney World mm-hmm. and like other places like that. Planetariums? Yes. Uh, so then also this year, Buona Devil becomes the first film to be shown in 3D, Whoa. starting a wave of other 3D films that lasted uh, over a few years huh. before it died out and then came back again as a craze and then died out and came back again as a craze. <laughs> and, you know, we've been there a few times already. What is the style of 3D? Like, I know the blue red glasses and that similar stuff that comes that. in the 90s, but like... that It's very similar to that okay. idea. Huh. Yeah. Like colors, essentially. Yeah. And some sort of like film between you and the screen. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, we have the Golden Globes reaching their 10th ceremony. So huzzah for them. Uh, <laughs> with several of the awards predicting who would win again at the Oscars, including The Greatest Show on Earth with Best Picture mm-hmm. and Gary Cooper and Shirley Booth both winning Best Actor and Actress. Hmm. Different supporting actors? Yes. Ah. At the fifth Emmy ceremony, I Love Lucy wins Best uh, Sitcom, also a new category because they had to uh, give it to I Love Lucy. They and are that was creating like, their own thing, yeah. baby. Um, as well as Best Comedian, which was a category for Best Female Comedian uh-huh. uh, for Lu- Lucille Ball, and Best Actress for Helen Hayes. Hey, let's go, girls. So she, of course, is one of the first to win the EGOT, uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. And now she becomes the first to win the Triple Crown of Acting, receiving Best Actor or Best Supporting in Emmy, Tony, and Oscar. Wow. Oh, what a woman. Yeah, good for you, Helen Hayes. Good for you. Congratulations. Um, At the seventh Tony Awards in the same year, The Crucible and Wonderful Town win Best Play and Best Musical. How wild would it have been to watch The Crucible at this time? Yeah. I mean, it was basically like watching High Noon. It's almost the exact same story, but as a Western. People really wanted to try and show what was happening. Yeah. Thomas Mitchell wins Best Actor in a Musical, which at the time was changed suddenly to Distinguished Musical Actor. (laughs) 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 So they got rid of all the best words like describing actors in the tonys for a few years and called them distinguished i don't that know sounds why like a very it was like a political thing, thing to do yeah he won that for the show hazel flag and this makes him the second person to win the triple crown of acting less than two months after wow. helen hayes is the first <laughs> to be fair though at this point in time Film, television, Broadway are all way more connected. Extremely interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. The only other award won for The Crucible was supporting actress for Beatrice Strait, who played Elizabeth Proctor, Hmm. despite Arthur Kennedy playing John Proctor, (gasps) who was one of Miller's favorite actors and basically performed in all of his. Of course, he won playing Biff in Death of a Salesman. Just a couple years ago. And Madeline Sherwood, who starred in almost all of Tennessee Williams' original productions, playing oh. Abigail Williams. Oh, that would have been so amazing. Neither of them won. Wow. Wow. Obviously, there's politics there, too. Also that. Yes. So, <laughs> on to The Greatest Show on Earth. This had a budget of $4 million, which is a huge amount of money so far for a picture. That wins Best Picture. And it grossed $36 million worldwide. <gasps> wow. Becoming the second best-selling film ever behind Gone with the Wind. Wow. 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 I have to give it credit where credit is due. It is super cool to watch. Yeah. The circus stuff is such a spectacle. So it is now the best-selling Paramount film to date, uh, beating out a previous DeMille film from a few years prior, Samson and Delilah. People would rather go to the circus than the Bible. Yeah, and people thought that this was strange that it did beat out because a lot of reviews from that film at the time basically said, it's sex and the Bible. What else could you want? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what the code permits? You're allowed to have sexy films if they're biblical? I don't know. And I don't know how sexy that film would be considered today. (laughs) But it's funny because those reviewers thought that's what it was then. Amazing. Um, So David O. Selznick first actually had this idea for an epic circus film in 1948, but he couldn't come up with enough money to get the project really going. Mm -hmm. Um, His idea was to follow the circus for a season using the circus's official slogan as the title of the film, The Greatest Show on Earth. 
It was set to star Gregory Peck, Joseph Cotton, and Shirley Temple, among others. Oh, my. Of course, the deal eventually fell through. Um, DeMille was very eager to steal this idea and (laughs) made the same deal with John Ringling North, who is the current president of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, He was the president of that circus from 1937 to 43, and again from 47 to 67. Um, His mother was the sister to the original seven Ringling brothers. They, the circus, was paid uh, $250,000, about $3 million today, for the use of their name, um, for the use of, like, shooting in their tents, their equipment, and the rights to the film, and to use several of their acts in the circus in the film. Hmm. And then, of course, uh, John Ringling North, thought it would be great to be in the film so he actually plays himself uh, in the film okay that's him sitting behind the desk yeah. and like making the deal gotcha and he was a fine actor to play that little role they're all just men sitting in a room doing yeah. what men do at this point time all male actors are the same so <laughs> so in a joint press conference uh with demille and ringling north to announce the partnership for the film demille said quote This is not to be a history of the circus. We will tell the story of the circus and its people in relation to all other people. I I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But it's interesting because I was expecting this to be about how Ringling Brothers was started. Yeah, and they just throw you right in to where they're at. Right. It's just about present day in the 50s. The current season they're going through. Yeah. So in the summer of 1949, DeMille and a film crew started filming the circus, coming up with most of the documentary-style footage actually used in the film, in which there were no featured actors while DeMille started to work on a plot. Oh my gosh. This makes so much sense. (laughs) Yes. Wait till it makes even more. Uh, DeMille had rarely made films from an original script not based on another story. Uh, Because of this, DeMille and his writers really struggled to come up with a story (laughs) worth telling. (laughs) Why are they writers? I don't know. After several months and no script to speak of and nearly (gasps) $50,000 already gone towards five writer salaries... DeMille told them all how he would watch films with his grandson, Jody. And when Jody could point out, that's the bad guy or that's the good guy, it usually meant they were watching a good film. Oh, my gosh. He told them all to go home and to come back with a story that Jody could understand. A few days later, one of the writers came back with a 17-page outline with a simple plot that began as such. (laughs) Quote, Once upon a time, there was a circus, and the boss of this circus is a strong, tough young fellow called Brad Gable. Brad lives and breathes circus. <laughs> he eats and drinks circus. <laughs> Carry on. Brad is in love with Holly, the flyer, but Brad could never tell Holly that he loves her. In fact, he hardly admits it to himself. He knows it isn't good for the boss of a circus to be in love with a performer. When this happens, he gets to worrying about her because she might fall and be hurt. She becomes more important to him than the circus, which shouldn't be. So it goes on from there, but that is how it began. And as you can see, that is where the simplest of all simpleton plots came from. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would just like to say that my sisters and I playing with our Barbies came up with better plot lines than this movie and we were like children in a room for two hours yeah it's not a complicated story also like it's not complicated and yet it's convoluted because like 
they there's too many like complications yeah and they turn around too many times where she's like oh no i love you brad oh my gosh i do anything for sebastian he's the love of my life brad is the love of my life it's been that way all along and it's like well we didn't see a moment where you turned from one to the other you just have been in love with everyone. Yeah, because those moments in between are all taken up by like documentary footage of the circus. Right, yeah. They just needed a simpler plot in order to supplement the documentary stuff. Yeah. Or not do the documentary stuff or not do the plot stuff. Yeah. This takes us to December of 1950. Um, the assistant editor, Edward Salvin, and unit manager, Roy Burns, scouted the circus for a month to see what kind of technical requirements would be needed to achieve the amount of filming that DeMille hoped for with the mm. actors, mm-hmm. with the circus. Um, once the script was completed, principal shooting began in January of 1951, starting in Sarasota, Florida, with the parade scenes through the town. Um, nearly 50,000 people showed up from Sarasota, Florida, after they heard that the crowd would be in the movie while they filmed the parade. Huzzah. Uh, they Everyone shot be an extra. for a month in Florida, then for two months on sound stages in Hollywood. Then they rejoined the circus in Washington, D.C. and traveled with it to Philadelphia. Um, the parade sequence was the first time that the circus had done a full dress parade in 31 years. It had... Uh, before been a normal part of the circus festivities in its early years as a way to generate buzz for the shows the same way that it did in the oh yeah in the Mm -hmm. movie demille actually did all the voiceover narration for the documentary style portions of the film so that's his voice that you hear lucille ball was initially cast in the role of angel um, but gloria graham got it after ball dropped out because of her pregnancy i saw that i was kind of sad but at the same time they were the like she's the best actor in the film yeah and so it would have been okay either way i think yeah it's too bad lucille ball couldn't have been holly (laughs) (laughs) um burt lancaster who had prior circus experience actually as a flyer um, really? yes and kirk douglas were both considered for the role of brad before the part eventually went to charlton heston was that like a thing people commonly did back then circus stuff yeah probably huh um and this was only charlton heston's third film um, I commented many times watching the film that he was not very good in this. Yeah, you can tell it's his third film. Yeah, so he definitely improves by the time he's like doing Ben-Hur. This is a rumor. It's not <laughs> been substantiated. But basically, the rumor tell you anyways. <laughs> is that <laughs> Charlton Heston was driving around on the back lot at uh, Paramount. Okay. And he passed uh, Cecil B. DeMille, who was walking along the back lot somewhere. And he gave this wave at him and Cecil B. DeMille had never seen him before and thought the wave that he did was so magnetic that he found out who that actor was and specifically had him come and test for this part because he just loved the way that he waved oh my gosh that is a Hollywood rumor if I've ever heard one (laughs) oh my lord what a bunch of malarkey that's how everyone wants it to happen well Is the magic real? I don't know. Who knows? I'm cynical about it. Then, of course, uh, Jimmy Stewart is in this. Yes. We haven't talked about that at all yet. Um, Just the weirdest subplot ever. He really wanted to be in a film that DeMille was making. And we haven't really mentioned this, but DeMille is basically on his way out of town uh, because he's very old. He's 70 when he's directing this picture. Oh, dang. Um, and he's like, his health is really starting to decline. He like went into weird, like fits of sleep several times on the set of this film because fits of sleep, what? Like narcolepsy almost. Oh, okay. 
I was like, I don't know. I don't Sorry, understand what that means. <laughs> was what it was described as <laughs> when I read it at, in on like, I don't know, the TCM website or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. Anyways, people knew that he was getting old. That's also one of the reasons why people say that he was given Best Picture because it was like his last. He had never won a competitive Oscar up to this oh point. Oh my gosh, are you serious? I guess that's true. Yeah. Wow. Um. And so people kind of were like, well, for the whole of his work and the fact that like he finally mm. put out this film that was like, he put out another film that was super popular. We may as well just give it to him. Anyways, Jimmy Stewart wanted to be in a film with him and like thought that this was going to be one of his last films, yeah. which he was right about. Yeah. Um. So he basically begged for a part and DeMille told him that there was a really small part that he could play that would be really interesting and that he wouldn't be able to show his face because in the part, the clown wouldn't be showing his face. He would be in clown makeup the whole time. Uh, and Stewart asked him if the role was essential to the plot. That was his quote. And DeMille told him yes. And he said he would do it for any amount of money to be in it. And he said he would even do it at scale. Um, wow. Like for the minimum SAG wow. rate. Just That's... so that he could do it. And he said huh. like he didn't care. He just wanted to be in the film. He liked the cast as it was shaking out already. Wow. And thought that, you know, it would be really fun. I'm sure they paid him more than scale. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure they didn't pay him what he got paid like for other big like starring yeah. roles. Betty Hutton was always the front runner for the role of Holly. Uh, why? Um, she was a singer and a dancer as well as a popular actor. Um, she was really big on Broadway, actually. Hmm. Um, her most recognizable role in film up to this point was as Annie Oakley in Annie Get Your Gun. Oh, is she the original Annie Oakley? Yes. Oh. Hutton and Graham, Gloria Graham, and Dorothy Lamore, who played the Iron Jaw girl. Oh, yeah. Um, they trained extensively and performed all of their own stunts in the film. Whoa. All three of those women. All of the acrobatics? Yes. She, Even the ones where she's actually flying? Yes. She performed them all. Wow. Um, of course, they shot them with like nets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking that as we were watching it, they like cut the nets down and then there's no nets, but then they shoot it in a way that you can't see you the nets. You don't have to see the nets, so. yeah. I guess his name is Cornell Wild. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Colonel Wild, Cornell Wild. Uh, he played Sebastian. Um, he performed most of his stunts, but he suffered from extreme, uh, like, height phobia, the fear of what? heights. Then why is he playing that role? Because uh, he wanted it and looked good for the part. I mean, did you see his pants? Yes, I did. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, several of the stunts were performed by Bill Snyder, who was the regular flyer for the Ringling Brothers. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. These were the ones that didn't have to include his face. Yeah. Uh, especially including a shot where Sebastian caught Holly oh, by okay. the ankles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. So she did it herself okay but he didn't do the catch gotcha i mean with nets below you i would feel fine doing whatever so yeah. i can see why they would be up for that yeah that takes us to the famous train crash sequence oh, gosh. oh my gosh oh my gosh are we gonna talk about sebastian's hand at all or are we just gonna let that go <laughs> we're gonna let it go i mean he didn't even do his own stunts when all three lead women did so yeah. like boo on you dude like <laughs> live up to the standard yeah. set by the ladies for real well and gloria graham even did the stunt with the elephant where yeah, it was like i was reading about inches that. from her face that, that's terrifying yeah i would not do that yeah that's wild so for the train sequence they purchased a lot of already damaged train cars from a junkyard um to like 
put okay. on top of each other yeah. for after the crash. Um, and then they damaged some even further by dropping and throwing large metal wrecking <laughs> balls against them. Just something I read. Thought that was interesting. Um, for the actual crash, they used a mix of shots with a few, like maybe two or three full-scale train cars crashing into each other and a miniature replica shot with six different cameras all at different speeds uh, and careful editing so that they could stitch all the shots together to create like a realistic sequence. Mm. And for what it was, for not like having CGI or anything, Mm -hmm. they probably did the best they they could. I'm sure they did. Yeah. I didn't think it was that bad. No. I was reading a lot of articles that were so hypercritical of it, and I don't think it was that bad. Yeah. I mean, it was made in the 50s with like miniatures. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. For the post-crash scene, they released all of the animals into stage 16 at Paramount, (gasps) which proved a huge nightmare for everyone because the large cats began attacking people. Of course they did. What? (laughs) And other animals. (laughs) Are you serious? They just let them free. Okay. When that sequence happened where the lions get out and the leopards get out, I was scared like watching it because it looks like they're unsupervised. They just are like- They were. They're creepy crawling out of the wreckage. And it is like a harrowing image. Like you as a person, your primal instincts say run. Like you know that's a bad thing. That was real. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Who decided that was okay? So all of the smaller monkeys- escaped uh, that uh, stage, stage 16, and fled the studio over the <gasps> wall into the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, they which know is what they're doing. They're like, next door to Paramount. Out. Oh, my gosh. Oh um, my gosh. And they almost didn't catch all of them. I'm sure they didn't. They ended up getting them all, but it like took so long because they were just like jumping around the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my heavens above. Uh, a funny little... Uh, movie thing about this crash scene um and this film is that this is the first film that steven spielberg ever saw yeah uh his father took him to the theater when he was four years old um and the train crash sequence was very exciting to him and he has referenced it several times in uh some of his films um specifically modeling the train crash in super eight after it oh okay and then also playing the train crash from this film on a TV in the film War of the Worlds as two kids uh, channel surf. Huh. Oh, nice. Which is interesting. Yeah. Our first movies are very formative for us. Yeah. And he says many times that it was like made a big impact on him and yeah. made him love films. I mean, I'm in the film industry because of Barney's Great Adventure. So here um, we are. <laughs> I don't know that you should admit that one. <laughs> My first film <laughs> in the theaters. <laughs> We've sort of mentioned it before, but like this film won because of like political reasons. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Also because of DeMille. Like he was nearing sure. the end of his career and they were worried he wasn't going to win an Oscar, which is also partly why they wanted to give him the Irving G. Thalbert yeah. Memorial Award. Mm-hmm. Also, it was very well received at the time. A-, a lot of people really enjoyed it. I was reading a bunch of, I saved a bunch of quotes from different critics. Well, and it's funny too because another thing that I was reading is that. Critics even knew that they, even if they slammed a DeMille picture, it yeah. wouldn't cause people to not go see it. Yeah. Because he just made like huge, epic, yeah. big budget films mm-hmm. that made a lot of money. Yeah. You know. Well, one of the quotes I found from Variety was that, quote, Mr. DeMille is so accomplished a showman that one is astonished he did not just photograph a circus performance without the synthetic story he injected here. After all, the Ringling Brothers, Barnum, and Bailey Circus is a wonder in itself, but he had to add the love interest and schmutz it all up. Yeah, right. 
So that was kind of like what I had, at least what I have read other critics saying is like, it was going to be a good film. We knew it was going to be a good film. We knew it was going to be a spectacle. And they had to add this dumb love stuff into it that kind of ruined the whole thing. Yeah. But even then, you know, it became the second best selling picture up to that time. That brings us to our closing bit. As you know, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film and this episode. I would like to start out by thanking professional writer somewhere who worked for Cecil B. DeMille writing this incredible sentence. Once upon a time, there was a circus, and the boss of this circus is a strong, tough young fellow called Brad. Brad lives and breathes circus. Dot, dot, dot. He eats and drinks circus. I bet if you found one of my journals from when I was in like fourth or fifth grade, this story would have been in it. Oh, boy. Classic Brad who eats and drinks circus. (laughs) I hope they gave that to Charlton Heston to be like the byline of his character. (laughs) Yeah, we've called you in to audition for this role. Uh, Here's your breakdown. Um, you're you're going to be playing the role of Brad. He he eats and drinks circus. He is strong. <laughs> <laughs> he lives and breathes circus. I would like to thank the Academy for animals that know better. All those animals in that train wreck, they knew they got to get out of there. Yeah. Humans are stupid, man. Yeah. You can't put wild animals in captivity and then release them and then say, go for it and think they're going to go back to captivity. That's yeah. not the way it works. Good job, uh, monkeys yeah, escaping get free. to <laughs> the cemetery where DeMille would soon lie. <laughs> All the monkey business. <sighs> I would like to thank the Academy for Helen Hayes and Thomas Mitchell, the first two to win the Triple Crown of Acting. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, both great actors in their own rights. Uh, of course, Helen Hayes is definitely the more famous of the two of those. Yeah. Much more accomplished, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, congratulations to them. That's amazing. Yeah, setting a pretty amazing precedent. And like, this is only at the fifth Emmys and the seventh Tony Awards. Yeah. And already the two of them have got one of each. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I would like to thank the Academy for the grandiose effort they put into televising this ceremony. And I'm saying that sincerely because (laughs) I know that progress is hard and changing of technology is hard. And I think that this is a really good movement forward, first of all, just in terms of progress, but also in terms of inclusivity and allowing the public to engage with Hollywood and be a part of this ceremony. And even though, you know, there's no public voting and like the general public is not really involved in any way. It's really cool to be allowed to watch these ceremonies and to see how things shake out in person in a way. And like, this is a tradition that has carried on to now when you and I get to sit here and watch the Academy Awards. And I just think that's remarkable. And this is the first time it happens. And so I want to thank the Academy for all of the blundering and all of the bumbling that goes into trying a new thing and the effort that goes into making it work. Yeah. I just wanted to give one little more thanks to Carl Foreman, who wrote High Noon, yeah. and to mm-hmm. Arthur Miller, who wrote The Crucible, mm-hmm. for like just speaking their minds. Yeah, standing and up for the right things. Using art to try to combat the evil that was happening and not being afraid to put those works out there. Yeah. When they easily could have been 
I mean, their own blacklisting was on the line by doing that. Yeah. And to stand there and face down an entire committee and to not just be scared and not cower and not be afraid of what might happen, but to decide that risking your own neck is worth it to tell the truth and to shed a light on those things. I mean, and there are so many people in the industry that are responsible, specifically the television reporters that end up bringing down Mm -hmm. most of the Red Scare, but people in the industry are mostly responsible for the end of this terrible time in American history. And Mm -hmm. it's people like these artists that are responsible for that. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks to them. Yeah. And uh, we'll remind you again, uh, next week, we will not be talking about the 26th Academy Awards. That will be two weeks from now. Yes. Um, But next week, you will hear some more cool stuff. Yeah, we'll be doing some deep dives and some more information about some of the topics we've touched today or other things like that. So please join us then. We would love to keep sharing with you. We think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on that, you know, it's cool to learn about. And if you want to skip that episode and just uh, listen to the ones about the best pictures, that's fine. They will be there as they always have been. They will. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.